We've been in the book of Hebrews. For those of you that are new, we're in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. What we do here is we study the scripture, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, believing that as we go along, you certainly can't get the full counsel of God on one Sunday, but as we go along, you will get the full counsel of God's word. We take the easy stuff, we take the hard stuff, and everything in between. And here in the book of Hebrews, the background is that there were a group of believers in the first century that were struggling. It was about 30 or so years after Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, and they expected that he'd have returned by then, but he hadn't. And so they were struggling. They were looking at going back to Judaism because Judaism offered them a lot as far as the tangible aspects of worship. They had the temple, they had the synagogue, they had all the feasts, the national feasts and all of that. But but the things that they lacked in Judaism, the writer is bringing clear in this letter. He's letting them know, you can't go back. It's expired, essentially. And he's gone through a lengthy argument in this section that we're in, in the book of Hebrews, chapters 7 through 10. Uh, it's the biggest section in the book, and it deals with the whole thing about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Contract. That's what covenant means. Testament means contract. Not our contract with God, but God's contract with us, because he's the one that initiates it. And we've seen that Jesus actually holds up both ends. And so as we look at this, as we understand the context of what we're looking at this morning, chapters 7, 8, and 9, the writer has gone to great length to lay out a number of different aspects of Judaism and how Jesus is better. He's superior. That's the theme of the entire letter, by the way. This is a letter written to Jewish believers, again, who were struggling. So they'd forsaken Judaism, and they're thinking about going back. Uh, as we're looking at this in chapter 10, the last chapter of this section, is the writer begins to sum up, and he's going to give a summary of the things that he's been talking about. Remember, we talked about uh, two weeks ago, uh, we had a break last week when, when Charlie came and spoke to us uh, about Thailand and we were studying in various scriptures. But two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that, that the writer has been going through and he's taking the same subject matter, but he keeps hitting it from different angles. And it's because he's making a series of points. Now what the writer is going to do in chapter 10 is he's going to begin to summarize those points because there's a conclusion that he wants to bring them and us to. And the fact is, is that simply Jesus is better than anything, any ism, any religion, any aspect that you could look at uh, of relating to God, that Jesus is not only better, but he is the singular way to God. And so as we look at that this morning, uh, I want to describe to you what a summary is, and, and, and hopefully you can connect that with the text. It simply restates, in brief, all the points that have been made so far. There's three reasons that the, the writer begins to summarize here in chapter 10. The first is to remind readers what's been covered to this point. He's gone through a lot of work, and if you've been with us, you've seen that he's gone into great detail. Really, he dismantles Judaism... And point by point, he compares it to what is what a person can have in Christ. And so uh, he wants to remind readers. He, the other is to clarify the main points, because this is a particularly complex argument and presentation. He's been bringing them along. Now, one of the things that's interesting, as we've mentioned before, 
the book of Hebrews is the highest Greek. It's, it is the highest literary style in all of the New Testament. The writer here is intimately familiar with Judaism. He's intimately familiar with Christianity, and he understands the linkage, okay? He understands where the disconnects are as well. And so what he's doing is he's been systematically bringing these people along. Now, he's clarifying those points in, in chapter 10, and, and also, the, the main thing he's doing is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's bringing them, and by the way, you and I, to a specific conclusion about what he's been writing. There are eight points in chapter 7 through 9. I'll read them quickly, and then you'll see them as we go through the text. We're going to go through the first 18 verses, Lord willing, this morning. And uh, yeah, you guys are laughing. You know how far I go. Um, and and I, if we have to stop early, we will. But I want to cover a lot of ground this morning because a lot of this is, as I mentioned, it's review. But it's important to review, and he makes specific points along the way. The first, in chapter 7, we saw the superiority of, of this guy named Melchizedek, this high priest after the order of Melchizedek that, that as I mentioned before, he, he just shows up in the Old Testament, and then he's gone. Uh, but he's considered a high priest in that sense. David, King David, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years later, talked about this guy, and he said that the Messiah will come after the order of Melchizedek, that he will be a high priest. So, we see the superiority of this guy, Melchizedek. All right, and then further on, we looked at the superiority and greatness of the new forever high priest. Remember, he says, you're a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek because the, the high priests in, in Judaism died or, or they, their term expired. They ministered from the age of 50, 30 to 50. Their term would expire. Then they would be training the guys that were coming up. And, and so there was a constant turnover and repetition. Many, many high priests over the years, over centuries of when they practiced these things. So he's superior because he doesn't die. The next thing we looked at was that there's a superior appointment, that he was appointed a high priest forever, not, remember, not after the, the, the power of a fleshly commandment. In other words, it was an external thing. They could never look at character on a high priest. It was simply because he was from the tribe of Levi. We looked at Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah, but it wasn't about that anymore. The new priesthood would be according to the, the power of an endless life. In other words, Jesus' priesthood is eternal. It never expires. It never stops. It's perpetual. It goes on. It's in place today, all right, as our high priest. So we looked at that. We looked at the fact that there's a superior covenant, that the old contract, the writer says that old contract has expired, as I mentioned, that there's a new contract, that there is a new way that God has instituted by which he's going to relate to man and by which man can relate to God. And it's not going to be according to the old way. It's not going to be according to law. It's going to be according to, to grace. And, and that's what he talks about when he talks about this new covenant. He talks about a superior mediator of the new covenant. Remember, we looked at Jesus. He's called the guarantor. He's called a surety here in, in these chapters. And, and that as the mediator, the one who carries out the covenant, we see that the great benefit that we have in Jesus is that he enforces both sides. He holds up both sides. He mediates on the behalf of God. He's God in the flesh. He's the God-man. And so he holds up that end. He initiates the covenant. But then he also, by his own grace and by the, the, the beautiful design that he has, knowing that we are powerless 
holds up our end of the covenant. So he does that. We, we, we looked at, at about three weeks ago, we looked at the fact that there was a, an a, a earthly sanctuary. It was called the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And this tabernacle was, it was a yard with a tent. We looked at that in depth. And then the next week we looked at the heavenly sanctuary, which was superior in every way because it's actually in the very throne room of God. We went into the book of Revelation in chapter five and we located All of the same things that were in the tabernacle are present there in the throne room of God. That blew me away. I was just amazed when I was studying that out and and looking at it thinking, this stuff, there's no way you can make this up. There's no way that this over hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, that these things could link together were it not for the divine inspiration of the scripture. You can bank on that. This word, this word of God that we study, that we want to learn, that we want to learn to apply to our lives is absolutely without error. Error. It, it is inerrant, it is inspired, and it's profitable for us as we live our lives. So we looked on further and we saw that there was a superior sacrifice, that there was blood, the blood of bulls and goats. And we'll look at that this morning as we look at sacrifice and what that means the blood of bulls and goats, that that wasn't going to get it. It was never going to be able to bring man into fellowship with God. It could cover sins. Those sacrifices could bring a covering for sin, but they could never do away with sin. They, they could not remit sins. And so it, essentially we looked at, they were essentially there to keep man alive because of the holiness of God. You've got to understand that God is holy. And that as we come to a holy God, that there is a requirement, there's a penalty for sin, and that's death. The animals went in their place. We looked at the fact that we have a superior sacrifice because when Jesus goes in our place, he literally throws the door open to full-blown fellowship with God, that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. So we've looked at that. Through that, we receive a superior cleansing. Remember, we looked at the old covenant, the law. All it could do was wash someone on the outside. Remember, we looked at in the tabernacle, there was the laver. It was where the priest would ceremonially wash and all of that. In Judaism, all it could do was cover the outer man. But the sacrifice that Jesus made, the the cleansing that we experience, is that he cleanses our conscience. He goes right to our hearts. We looked at in Jeremiah chapter 31, and he quotes that again this morning in the text we're going to be in. He, he says, I'm going to write my law in their hearts, and, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to do this new thing. And he tells Jeremiah that 500 and some odd years before Christ, so that when Christ came, there would be a record, a prophetic record, saying, announcing God's intentions way ahead of time. So in summarizing all the points that have been made so far, he's combined them to bring the reader and us to a single overarching truth. And that truth is Jesus is better. End of story. You know, I grew up in an ism. Many of you were part of an ism, whether it's Catholicism or Mormonism, like in my case, or some other ism. And an ism, Judaism, it's not going to cut it. It's religion. It's empty. It, it, it leaves man wanting. It cannot do the work that only Christ could do. And when you see that, because people, we want rules. We, I like having a checklist. 
I like getting to the end of the day and checking it off. Man, I, you know, it was good to my wife today. Yeah, I did some things today. You know, and, and you could go down the list and, and we want, we like that. Because our nature, our fallen nature is oriented towards works. But that's not what Jesus does. It's not how he approaches us. And it's not the basis that he wants us to approach him on. And that's part of what we're looking at. So this instruction that we're getting here is summary. And in verse 19, we're going to go through verse 18. But next week in verse 19, we'll look at what that means, the application both what to do and what not to do, because towards the end of this chapter is the strongest warning, I believe, in all of God's word for Christians. It is a very strong warning, and and I want to walk through it carefully. I want to do it justice. I'm not going to try to pile on a bunch of excuses for it, it is very strong. It's very powerful. And, and, and we do well. And, and the writer puts that out and he says, you know, like he said in chapter six, he said, I'm, con- I'm convinced of better things concerning you. Look at the things you're doing. I want you to understand this warning. It's part of the application because he tells them, look, this is as a result of these things. He starts in verse 19 with the word therefore, and we've looked at that before. When you see the word therefore, you say, what's it there for? And it relates back to what's just been said, and that's what we're looking at this week. So next week we'll get into that. But suffice it to say, there's, there's no shortage of people that will try to tell you what to do in relating to God, what to do. Because and I'm telling you, you turn on the television, there's so much junk out there, or you go to particular organizations, and, and I fall short of calling them churches, <laughs> that, that will give you a list of things to do by which you can feel that you've had some religious experience and all of that. No, the writers, he's moving away from that. As a matter of fact, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, this is what Jesus had to say about the works of God. He says, don't labor or work, for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, underline give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? See, their whole they were wired for what is it that we need to do? How can we come to God? What's this relationship based on? And our, again, our nature is we want to base it on what we do. And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Sounds simple? It's because it is. It's profoundly simple. It's so simple we can miss it. Hang on to that as we go through. But it's about doing versus being. I remember Bart. Uh, Bart was a guy uh, in, my, in my church in California. <laughs> and, and this guy, his wife gave her life, gave her heart to Christ. She came to the Lord and she was in the sanctuary and he was, uh, he was a high priest, so-called high priest in the Mormon church. And, and he showed up, he wouldn't go into our sanctuary. He showed up in the foyer of the church. We had a big glass wall there and he, he stood there with his arms folded and a scowl on his face trying to figure out what this cult was that got a hold of his wife. And we were just simply teaching the Bible. And pretty soon as the week, he showed up there every week. And, and I'd try to talk with him and chat him up, and he'd kind of give me short answers and stuff. And and uh, and then pretty soon I noticed that he was coming. It, we had a speaker in the foyer. Even though it was it was walled off with glass, he could see uh, what was going on in the sanctuary, and, and he could hear because we had a speaker out there. And pretty soon 
He's showing up, and instead of his three-piece suit, he's just got a sport jacket and an open-collared shirt, kind of like this. And I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. Well, pretty soon, he's showing up in in jeans and a T-shirt. And this guy, he's like a big kahuna in the Mormon church. He's like, I'm thinking, Lord, what are you doing? This is all outward. Pretty soon, the guy was just an absolute wreck for Jesus. God got a hold of him because his word was going out and he began to get clarity and to, he, he began to realize he had lived his whole life for a lie. Before long, uh, you guys know what house pants are. They look like pajama bottoms, but they're not. He, it would be time for, he, he came on, he went for a few months and then he came onto our worship team like the guys up here and I remember seeing him sitting in a chair, a stool kind of like this and he had his house pants on and I don't remember if he was wearing socks or not. He was dressed appropriately, but he was dressed way down. But I began to realize, again, the externals, what had happened in this man's life is he began to come into a relationship based upon the grace of God, not upon his works. And when he gave his life to Christ, he hit the ground running. And I was so blessed to see the transformation, yeah, outwardly, but the transformation in his heart was absolutely remarkable. That's what the writer is wanting to bring about to these people. He's saying, don't go back to law. Don't go back to the rules and the regs. Don't go back to the sacrifices. Don't do it. And here's why. So in chapter 10, the writer first emphasizes the perfect sacrifice of Christ, and then he exhorts, Believers to draw near to God. Again, and we'll get into that next week when we look at what to do, what not to do, uh, when we uh, get to that point. But here in chapter 10, in verse 1, we read, For the law, having a shadow, which is a replica or a reflection of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. The picture here is of an, uh, it, it'd be like looking at an outline, but there's no substance in the outline. It would be for us like if you looked at a silhouette of a person as opposed to a photograph of a person. What he's saying is it's a shadow. The law was a shadow. It, it was not the complete image. It wasn't the complete picture of God's relationship to man. The law of Moses, the old covenant, could only cover sins because it was a shadow. It was not complete. It was not the image. It was the outline. You could see it, but you could never lay hold of it. And the people were continually reminded of that because the door to God's presence remained closed. As busy as they were, as much as they did the work, as often as they went to the the tabernacle and then to the temple and, and, and did the sacrifices and all of that, they could simply get a covering for their sins, but they could never experience relationship with God. They could never experience intimacy with God because sin was only covered, because it was a shadow. It wasn't bad. It was just incomplete. The law was an expression of God's heart. I'm not going to put down the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And now by faith in Christ, the law is fulfilled in us, in him. We don't have to. Uh, so as we look at this further, in verse 2, he says, For they would not have ceased to be offered... For then they would not have ceased to have been offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. He's talking about the Day of Atonement. So 
if what he's saying, he's mentioned this a few times, again, some repetition here, but he really wants to drive the point home that if it's on the basis of works, if it's on the basis of doing these repeated sacrifices to come into a relationship with God, why did they have to keep coming back? Because they were ineffective. They couldn't perfect. And what perfect means is to bring to completion. It doesn't mean perfect, and, and we'll get into that later on, but but. It, to, to bring to completion, it couldn't complete a relationship with God. It could bring, it could keep someone from death. It could keep someone from God's judgment. But the, the sacrifices were not the ultimate resolution to the issue of sin. They were never meant to be. They were meant to be something that pointed to a future fulfillment. Remember, we've looked at shadows. What is a shadow? It points to a greater reality. And the greater reality is the cross. We'll look at that as we go. So when he says worshipers here, he's talking about the people who are bringing the animals. That was their form of worship. That's how they worshiped. We worship way differently here. I'm sure glad that we don't have a bunch of sheep and goats and bulls in here. But, you know, the, 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 then that was the, the form of ordained worship that God set out. So when he says that there was a reminder of sin, what it means is there was an awakening of the mind. There was, an, uh, there was no inward witness of full and final forgiveness. They could not walk out of there feeling completely resolved, uh, absolved of sin. They could not do it. it. That wasn't what it was for because it was a temporary effect. It was something that they, again, as the writer says, they'd had to go back year after year. They had to continue to do. Every year on the Day of Atonement, that high priest would have to go back into the Holy of Holies, and he'd have to take the blood of the bull for his own sins, and then he'd have to take the the goat, the blood of the goat, sprinkle it before the Ark of the Covenant seven times, and do the whole ritual that he had. And it wasn't enough. It could never bring man into fellowship with God. Verse 4, for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Uh, as he looks at this Day of Atonement, we've looked at that quite a bit. I'm not going to go into it in depth again. But the word take away there, it, it means a taking off. It, the, the Greek word is afareo. And what that is, is that it's the same word. If you guys remember, if you've read the Gospel of John, when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Peter grabs the sword and he cuts this guy's ear off. He's the, the high priest's uh, servant. And, and he cuts this guy's, the guy's name was Malchus. And, and when it says he cut off his ear, that's the same word that's used here for take away. What it means is that the blood of bulls and goats could never cut our sins off from us. It could not take them away. It couldn't remove sin. Covered, yes. Removed, no. And, and so he's using very precise language, which he does in, in this letter. Uh, he's using very precise language to make his point. He says the blood of bulls and goats uh, won't do it. it. It's again, it's a temporary benefit. There are also three things that came about as a result of this. The first is that it was a continual reminder of sin and guilt. If I'm there Year after year, at the Day of Atonement, if I'm there, because the priests also carried out daily sacrifices, and, and they would they would have to do this perpetually. It was just an endless stream of sacrifices every day. And then once a year, going into the Holy of Holies and doing that on the Day of Atonement to atone for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So 
this perpetual thing, it, 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 it was a, it was a reminder of sin and guilt because I would, I'll be back. And so uh, the second thing is they impressed upon the people that the payment for sin was death. This was messy business. You know, we airbrush things. I mean, you do, you're not going to see on a flannel graph for Sunday school, you're not going to see the priest cutting the, the throat of an animal and its blood spilling on the ground as it cripples down and begins and loses consciousness and dies in front of you. And, and you would have a constant reminder that that was the effect of your sin. Horrid. It's horrid. Sin is messy. And God allowed it to be that way on purpose. It was not supposed to be pretty. It was supposed to show, to demonstrate that, that, that the payment for sin was death. You cannot come into the presence of a holy God without your sin being paid for. This was partial. Again, ultimately, bulls and goats were only a shadow of what was come, what was to come because they looked forward to the perfect sacrifice, which would be Jesus himself. I'm going to talk to you about sacrifice for a minute. Um, in Psalm 51, David, King David, is in agony. Remember, if you if you know the the Old Testament, he took he looked out uh, one day and he saw this beautiful woman taking a bath. Her name was Bathsheba, and he took her for his own. And she was married to a guy named Uriah. He was a Hittite, and he was out. He was in, he was in the military. He was one of David's mighty men, and David fell in love with Bathsheba, and he wanted her for himself, so he arranged for Uriah to be killed. All right? Now, David thought he got away with it until this guy by the name of Nathan, he was a prophet of God, comes to David one day, and this is much later, and and he tells David a story about a man with a little sheep, a little lamb. And, And David is incensed about this story, and he says, that man needs to pay. And Nathan essentially said, you are that man, David, because of what you did with Bathsheba. Again, not going to go into the whole story, but but essentially, David's sin found him out. All right? When that happened, David penned Psalm 51, and it begins with, against you and you only have I sinned, Lord, and done what is evil in your sight. And the whole, it's a beautiful psalm. It outlines beautifully what repentance is. In other words, changing my mind, realizing I've sinned and, and changing my mind about it, having the humility to acknowledge my sin before God. Well, anyway, uh, he says in verse 16, he appears to contradict himself in Psalm 51. In verse 16, he says, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. And so it's like you, you read that and you think, okay, what does he mean there? And then in two verses later, in verse 19, he says, you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offering. So he says, you don't, but you do. So did God want their sacrifices or not? That's the question. And I'm going to illustrate this. Let's say that Stacy and I, that my wife and I, have a heated argument, which never has happened. Um, <laughs> if you're married, you know better. Let's say that we'd had an argument about something and, and, and that I just feel guilty and I, I'm, I, have, I feel ashamed of the way that I treated her and you know, I'm, I'm convicted and, and all. And, and I go down to Safeway and I, or, or to the flower shop. That's, that's better than Safeway. Let's say I buy her some flowers. Now, she doesn't need my flowers. What she's looking for is for the relationship to be mended. Okay? So I go to her, and I could go to her in one of two ways. I could go to her and say, you know what? I really don't like the fact that there's stress 
under our roof. So here's some flowers. How far is that going to get me? Not far. No. But if I go to her and I say, honey, you know, I love you. I'm so sorry for the things I said. My heart is just sad. I'm convicted Uh, at my heart. I don't like it when there's strife in our house. I don't like it when we're not together. And and I want to see that relationship mended. Oh, she's going to be all over that. You see, that's what God is looking for with these sacrifices. He's not looking for the sacrifice himself. He requires the sacrifice, but he doesn't desire it. All right? He requires it because there has to be a death to atone for sin. That's absolutely true. But when the writer says here that the blood of bulls and goats is not going to get it, what he's talking about is the attitude of the heart. He says that the, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. These sacrifices covered, couldn't cleanse, and they pointed for the once-for-all payment that Jesus would make with his own blood when he died for our sins. So what mattered was the attitude of those making the sacrifices. If the offerings were without repentance, it was a ritual, and it was mockery. It'd be the same if I came with a, with a, a, a disingenuous heart to my wife and said, you know, here, here's some flowers and threw them on the table. It, it doesn't mean anything. There's nothing there. And, and so I, I, I want you to understand that God is after the heart. In verse 17 of Psalm 51, David gets it right. Remember, and this is between the two, the two statements. You don't desire offering and you do desire sacrifice and offering. In verse 17, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. So what he's telling us there is God is after the heart. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, God expressed his desire that he put obedience above sacrifice, didn't he? Remember, it started back with Abraham when he had his son there and, and, and God stopped him. And he said, Abraham, I wanted the obedience and not the sacrifice. And that's, that's an under, it, it, it's, it's, it's an overriding theme in the whole Old Testament because it reveals the heart of God. He's not after the ritual. Yes, the ritual was necessary, but he's after the heart. And the old covenant, the law couldn't do that. It was not able to reach that far. The door into God's presence remained shut. That's the writer's point. That's why he's summarizing. So he's talking about these, the blood of these bulls and goats, and now he reaches back about a thousand years, and he goes into Psalm 40, and he employs, it's interesting, guys, one of the ways that, uh, and, and this is the primary way that I believe is it's a very safe way to study the Bible, and it's called inductive Bible study, and you don't have to be a scholar, or you don't have to be a pastor, or any of that stuff, but it's a really good way. What it is, is you observe the text, uh, and, and then you interpret the text, and then you apply the text, and what the writer does here, he actually does a Bible study with these people that he's writing to. He's going to bring some things out. He's going to look at Psalm 40, and then he's going to interpret what that means. And then next week, we won't get to it this week, he's going to apply that. And he's going to apply it some this morning as we look. So he says in verse 5, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Again, a thousand years before Christ, this was penned. What he's saying when he says a body you've prepared for me is that it's not going to be an animal for a human, but 
in order to atone for sin, in order to wipe sin out, it's going to require a human to die for humans, not an animal. In burnt offering, verse 6, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Again, it's about the heart. Then I said, behold, I've come. In the volume of the book, it's written of me to do your will, O God. Now, the writer's telling us of the prophetic nature of Psalm 40. It was absolutely a messianic psalm, saying that part of the work, the ministry of Jesus, when he came to this earth, would be to provide a body for the sacrifice. Now, when he says in the volume of the book, it's written of me, and Jesus essentially said the same thing in the Gospel of John chapter 5. He's squaring off with the religious leaders in chapter 5. And he says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. He's telling them, you want to look at the Bible? You want to look at what you see as... Because the Bible was the Old Testament. The New Testament was in process at that time. Their Bible was the Old Testament. He's saying, you know what? You search the Bible. You look through the Bible because you think you're going to find life there. But no... It is all about me. And, and, and as we study this, we see in the Old Testament that Jesus shows up all over the place. The plan of God shows up all over the place. And what the writer's doing is saying, look, that comes to bear in this case. Because it was never about animal sacrifices. It was never about the blood of bulls and goats. It was about the future fulfillment of the one who would take away sins. Verse 8, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire it, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. They were required, but not desired. You see what I'm saying? You see what the, the writer's bringing out here? He wanted, he needed the sacrifices because they needed to have their sins covered. But that wasn't God's desire. All along, it was pointing to a greater reality because this is a shadow. He says, I take no pleasure in them. What pleased God could only come through Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 53, that great messianic uh, 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 verse in Isaiah, it was part of when I gave my life to Christ, when I came out of the LDS church, the Mormon church, and gave my life to Christ, Isaiah 53 was key to my understanding, especially when I came to learn that it was written 700 years before Jesus was born. The entire passage is about the person and the work of Christ. One of the things that's said here in Isaiah 53 about God didn't take any pleasure in the blood of the bulls and goats and all of that in the old covenant in the law. He says in Isaiah 53, 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased God to bruise his son. He has put him to grief. And you make when you make his soul an offering for sin... He shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So what he's saying in that is that God wasn't pleased. He wasn't satisfied. You could look at it in that sense with the blood of these animals. But that why would he be pleased with the blood of his son? Because he loves you. Because he loves me. With, a, with an incomprehensible love, with a love that is so power, that, that powerful, that is so deep, that, that he would actually send his son to die. That's the gospel, folks. That's the message of God. It's not about blood, the blood of bulls and goats. It's not about the, all of the stuff to do. It's about the grace of God being poured out in the work, in the person of his son. And it's about the fact that it pleased the Lord to crush him 
because he knew that that was the only way that man could be brought into relationship with him. The only way that God, the creator, could be brought into relationship, into fellowship with his own creation. That's heavy. Verse 9, and he said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. When he said that, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. So he takes away, we've looked at that in this passage. Again, this is review. This is summary. He's summarizing here. He's taken away the old covenant that he could establish the new covenant. He's taken away the Levitical priesthood that he could establish the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. He's taken away the sacrificial system, which was repetition over and over with one sacrifice once for all. So he's taken the old out of the way and brought in the new. That's the writer's message to these people who are struggling in the first century, and that's his message to us. It's not about doing. It's about being. Oh, there are things to do, but that flows out of the relationship. It's never a means towards it, folks. It's never, it's never on the basis of what I do. It's on the basis of what he's done. And that's good news. We don't have to strive. We don't have to struggle. We don't have to try to produce stuff. We don't, you know, it's not about that. And as we simply come to him and we, and, and we recognize that it was his love that put Jesus on that cross. It's his love that brings us into relationship through the blood of Christ. That, that is the, that is such infinitely better news than anything I could do for God. Excuse me. Verse 10, by that will we have been sanctified. Uh, He says, he says, I've come to to do your will, O God. In verse 9, he says, by that will, what will? The will of God. We've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Our sanctification was, was founded in his offering. In other words, he says, and he says here, he says, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You know, and I, I'm not here to pick on other organizations, but I'll tell you what, there are organizations out there that, that do this whole Eucharist thing. The Catholic Church is one that, that says, you know, every time that you take communion, their, their version of communion, that you put Jesus on that cross again. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that that is done. It was, it did, it happened once. It was effective for all and it doesn't happen again. That's the writer's whole point. He is teaching the opposite of what that teaching says. He's saying that no, it is finished. When Jesus from the cross said it's finished, guess what? It was finished. There, the work was done. And we can rest in that. Again, it's not about doing. It's not about putting him on the cross every Sunday when I go to the Lord's table. It's about remembering the work that he did. Absolutely. But it's not about the work. It's about the relationship. Because to to make it about the work is to go back to the old way. That's why the writer is writing this. He's saying, no, don't do that. These people were considering going back to Judaism because it offered a lot to them. In, in, in a fleshly sense, it offered, I mean, it offered community, which they lost. They lost their communities. They lost their jobs. They lost their families. They had huge amounts of loss in their lives. And they're thinking, well, I could regain that if I just go back. He's saying, yeah, but you sacrifice too much in order to do that because you have to go against 
the way that God has set it up, the new thing that God is doing that he did when Jesus came, walked this earth, and went to the cross. When he says those who are being sanctified, he's talking about those who believe. I want you to understand, there is a condition to this. This isn't universal salvation, folks. He says that the, the condition is, is that you believe that you let the weight of your life down on Jesus. We've talked about that. The writer has has done a lot of discussion on that in previous studies, but the fact is that there are people who are set apart for God, people who are sanctified. And what that means is set apart. And if you want to know if you're set apart for God, you have to just simply answer one question. Have I released my life to Christ? Is he Lord in my life? Have I given my heart to him? Because if I want to hang on to my life, he says, you hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. You lose your life, you'll gain it. Verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he has said before, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts and their minds. I'll write them. And he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I'll remember no more. He quotes Jeremiah 31 here. Remember, he did that earlier on in this section. And he's prophetically describing the Spirit's work inside. In other words, this is going to go from external to internal. That's the whole point of, of the new covenant. It takes this external command, the law of the fleshly command, and drives the work of God into our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one. The point is the Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies. The Holy Spirit is the one who sets us apart. He is the one who does the work in us. We cooperate with that work, and the result of that is rest. We look at that in chapter 4 when, when he says, don't fail to enter the rest that God offers because it is a life of rest. It's not a life of work. When he says that in verse 17, their, their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. Again, review, he's already talked about this, and essentially what is being said here, we know that God can't forget. He's God. He's not saying that he's going to forget. It actually carries more weight when we look at it in terms of he chooses not to remember. So it's almost like God says, oh yeah, I remember that I chose to forget that. Uh, and it, it, does that make sense? So it, it, it's actually an active forgetting that he's talking about. He's not going to remember. He says, no, I'm choosing not to remember any of your sins. That slate is wiped clean by the blood of my son. Verse 18, now he says, now where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. The word remission is an interesting word. It literally means to remove the guilt that results from wrongdoing. In other words, that's way different. It goes way deeper than having my sins covered. All right? The blood of bulls and goats, again, brings a covering. The blood of Christ brings remission. And when he, when my sins are remitted, they're gone. The guilt is gone. Oh, I can walk around with a little dark cloud over my head and, and, and feel bad. One of the things I think is kind of weird is that, and I've noticed in my own life, especially earlier on in, in, in my Christian life, is that if I would do something wrong, I would go around and I would feel bad long enough to where I felt like I felt bad long enough. Now I can start feeling better about it. 
And, and if you run that out, it's just this weird kind of head trip thing that, that and I think that that's probably something that a lot of people do. No, he says, if you have, if God puts his finger, if the Holy Spirit puts his finger on an area of sin in your life, and you respond in faith saying, you know what, Lord, I believe that that's something you're showing me. I want to get rid of that. I want to roll that off onto you. Lord, please forgive me. I do what I need to do if I've offended or whatever and take care of it. It's gone. Do Folks, church, do you believe that? Do you believe that your sins are not just covered, but they're gone? When you do business with him, they're gone. Done. Out of the way. We struggle sometimes with that, don't we? Because the accuser of the brethren is right there trying to get us to get under condemnation for those things, to condemn us for the, you know what? And, 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 and I'm telling you, resist that. You can walk confidently. You can walk with your head held high. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not an excuse. It's a reality. And as we do business with him, as he puts his finger, as he illuminates areas of sin in our hearts, in our lives, we don't have to hang on to it. Oh, sometimes we want to hang on to it because sin can be pleasurable. We'll look at that in chapter 11. Because the writer talks about that. But folks, it's poison. It's dangerous. If you're in an area of sin, perhaps hidden sin, perhaps life-dominating sin, I don't know what's going on in your life. But I do know that the blood of Christ is effective to remove that, to cut it off from your life, to give you not just relief, but total cleansing. Because it's a cleansing of the heart. It's a cleansing of the conscience. That's what he's getting at. The old covenant, the law could never do that. It couldn't go to the inner man. It couldn't, it could not do it. But the blood of Christ does. Because it's effective all the way to the core of who we are. And I would invite you that by the Holy Spirit that if if he's working in your heart, if he's getting a hold of an area of your life, won't you yield that to him? Because if that's what he's doing, that's part of his transforming work. It's part of his sanctifying work. We have been sanctified holy by declaration. He declares us perfect, holy. We are being sanctified as we go along. I don't understand how he set that up, but I know that's how he did. That he declares us clean, he declares us sinless, he declares us holy and righteous, and then he starts to work. And he begins to conform us to the image of his son. It's a beautiful thing. It's an experience that we should embrace, not run from. Because he knows what's best for us. He knows our condition. He knows our frame. He knows those things that we struggle with before we do. And he wants our heart in ever-increasing measure because he wants to transform us. He wants to take this life that didn't add up to anything and make it something. What he requires of us, simply show up. Let him do the work. Give him permission. He won't violate your will. But I guarantee you, he will shout as loudly into your life as he needs to to get your attention. Again, in chapter 12, we'll look at that because we'll look at what it means to be chastised by the Lord. And that the Lord chastens those whom he loves. And yet, 
as I told my kids when they were growing up, you know what, guys, there's a short way and a long way. If you belong to Christ, he will have his way with you. The short way is you you go to a Bible study like this or you're studying at home doing devotions, whatever it is, and God speaks to your heart and you yield that thing. The long way is he aligns circumstances in your life to where you really don't have any choice but to yield that thing. And, and, but he, the fact is, he's faithful. If you're a child of the covenant, then this is the work that he wants to do. It's, it, is it divine surgery? Yes. Does it hurt sometimes? Absolutely. But does it yield? Well, I love, and I'm going to skip ahead. In, in chapter 12, he says, after we have experienced God's chastising hand, it yields afterwards the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It, it yields a peacefulness in, in our hearts. It yields uh, a deeper relationship, a greater understanding, spiritual blessings. We rob ourselves from that by trying to hold off from him, by saying, Lord, I'll only go so far, but, but, but I, I don't want to go that far. Folks, again, this is free. Not part of my notes. It's just, it, but it's, it's such an important aspect of walking with the Lord that we live lives that are yielded to Him, to His sanctifying work, to His cleansing work, because He cleanses us completely. He reaches right into the very heart. It's not about going down and sacrificing an animal and going home and knowing you're going to be back next year. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit to transform a life, your life, my life. When he says there's remission of these, is no longer an offering for sin, that is the best news that you could possibly get. You don't have to go back. There's no need for an offering. It was once for all. In the context of this passage, he's saying, your sins will be taken care of once for all. And you go, you sin again. Yeah, keep short accounts with me. But that sacrifice, that one sacrifice for all was enough. There's no longer an offering for sin because there's no need for an offering for sin when you belong to Christ. Your conscience is cleansed. That's great news. That's the heart of the gospel. Not only do you get eternal life, but you get a life that is actually worth living here. I look around town and I see the the yard signs that are encouraging things for teens and all of that. And I understand the the intent there. But I would submit to you that that there's an emptiness that people are longing to fill. There's a God-shaped hole in people's hearts. I think about the youth in Newburgh here. I think about the, 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 the futility that so many live with. Having moved away from the Judeo-Christian ethic, having moved away from understanding life through the lens of the Bible, having moved away and gone into this whole secular deal, it's no wonder that people live lives that they consider futile. We need to be a people that moves back to the Bible. We need to be a people that understands that this is life. And without him, life has no meaning. Without him, we wander. The, 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 the privilege of the new covenant is that you can be anchored in Christ. 
and you can find real answers to real problems in your life. You can find real peace in the midst of chaos all around. That's what he means. There's no need for another offering for sin. It's already taken place. His name is Jesus. He hung on a cross. His blood flowed out to give you life. And by the way, life more abundantly. Three common misunderstandings that we can see from this passage. I want to just talk about those as we wrap up this morning. First is that you can come into God's presence without being perfect. You're going, I don't know about that, Pastor John. I I know what my life looked like before church this morning. In Matthew 5.48, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is he's clarifying some things. He's talking about your righteousness has to be better than that of the scribes and the Pharisees or you can't see heaven. He says, you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And I know a lot of people have misinterpreted that and kind of made it the Christian law, like, yeah, you got to do all this work. No, 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 that's not what he's talking about. He's saying essentially there's two ways to God. You need to be perfect in every conceivable way for your entire life or you need to let the weight of your life down onto me and take my perfection. Perfection is required for heaven, folks. The fact is, we can't manufacture our own. There is no way. The animals were without blemish. When God asked for the animals, the sacrifices, he said they need to be animals that are not blemished. They don't have blemishes because they were symbolic. It was a shadow of perfection. It was a shadow of what God required. And he required perfection in the sacrifice. Yeah. And understand, though, that you're perfected by declaration by simple faith in Christ, that we are declared perfect. When we come into God's sight, when we come into his presence, he sees us as spotless. He sees us as cleansed. Why? Through the blood of the perfect sacrifice, through the blood of Christ. As he looks upon us, he sees us, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of our king. That's the point. So you have to have perfection, and the only place you can get it is not from a religion, it's not from an ism, it's not from a group, it's from the Lord himself. You have to have perfection, it only comes from Jesus, and it comes through through a personal relationship with him, through simply releasing your life and saying, Lord, I want what you offer. That moment, you're perfected. It's a declaration, and it's free. The second thing is that you can have a relationship with God through ritual and tradition alone. And I know Bible students, you know better, but I'm going to go there anyway. In Matthew 15, we read, uh, Jesus is, he's talking about, he's talking to the religious leaders. He was always squaring off with those guys. They were always coming to him and trying to trip him up or to trick him or do all that. And essentially, he said, in, in Matthew 15, he said, hypocrites, Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I have shared with you before that any aspect of a priesthood on this earth that is represented by a religious organization is a fraud. And I know those are strong words, but on the basis of God's word, I can say that because what he says here is that it's not about the commandments of men. 
When God's word clearly teaches that the priesthood is over, there is one priest. Period. There's one. And, 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 and that's it. Once for all. And he is a priest forever. The other priests die. It's not about ritual. It's not about ceremony. And yes, there's an aspect of that that, that I like. And there's an aspect that I'm, and I'm not here to, to split hairs about it. What I'm saying though is you're not going to find life there. You're going to find life in him. You can't have a relationship with God just on that basis. There has to be a personal aspect. There has to be a personal acknowledgement of the work that he did and allowing him to be your high priest, allowing his blood to take the effect that he designed it to take in your life. It's not about ritual. It's not about religion. It's not about any of those things. It's about Christ. The third thing here, and I want you guys to get this. It's a misconception that one must wait until it's all over to find out if we're really forgiven. There's a lot of talk out there. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of hype in spiritual circles that keep you coming back because they keep sort of like dangling the carrot, but you never quite attain it. The writer's teaching against that here, by the way. Judaism dangled the carrot, but you could never obtain it. And the writer's saying, not only is Judaism done, but but he's essentially saying, you don't have to wait to know that your eternity is secured. You don't have to, if somebody puts a a trip on you and says, well, you know, the Bible says, you know, work out your salvation. Yeah, of course we work out our salvation, but you can know today if you are eternally secure, have you let, again, the weight of your life down on Jesus? That's the question. That's how you know. It's very simple. You ask him to come in. You allow him to become Lord in your life. You submit your life to him, not with the big decisions. I'm not talking about, and yeah, that's a big decision. It's a big single decision that we make. But a life is shaped by the little decisions that go through all day, every day. And there are either things that are in line with the work of his Holy Spirit in us, or they're not. So you can be sure. I've I've shared with you guys a, a number of times, as far as eternal security goes, knowing that I'm forgiven, knowing that my life is in him, I don't worry about that in my life. And I tell you, don't ask me about your eternal security, but as for me, I'm secure eternally. Each of us has to answer that question. And I pray, I sincerely pray, laying in bed this morning praying for this message, I sincerely pray that you fall on the right side of that question because it's something that only you can answer. It's not a group. It's an individual thing. And that's where we can be assured. You don't have to wait until you die to know if you're forgiven or not. You can be assured now. He says their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. And, and, and don't listen to the people that project guilt or doubt. If you belong to Christ, you belong to Christ. Period. If you don't, if there is a, a question, see me afterwards or talk to somebody that's a mature believer and we'll help walk through that with you. But you don't have to walk out of here with a question mark over your head. 
again, God can't forget. When he says, I, I, uh, their sins and lawless deeds, I'll remember no more. He, he, he's, he doesn't forget. He chooses not to remember. That's so important. Why? Because you can have confidence. And that's the point. As we look at the summary of the things where he's been for the last three chapters, seven, eight, and nine, here in chapter 10, now he's summarized and he's bringing us to a set of conclusions. The main conclusion is that Jesus is better than any other thing. His sacrifice is infinitely better than anything that an animal could produce. The life that he offers couldn't happen. The Holy Spirit signifying the life that could, there was no life that could be offered because the conscience, because the heart was never cleansed. We get that in Christ. We get the whole package, folks. Let's not leave here without doing business with him. Um, I just pray. Well, let's pray together. Father, as we look at this and, and we go through and we we see that your word is just so powerful. Living and active, sharper than a...